Hello everyone, I'm here joined by Michael Shermer. Today is a very impressive and amazing conversation that we'll have. A bit of a background on Dr. Michael Shermer. He is the founding publisher of The Skeptic magazine, the executive director of The Skeptic Society, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he, where he teaches Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he, has a monthly, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and he's an author of New York Times bestsellers Why People we Believe Weird Things and The Believing Brain, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc, and Heavens of, on Earth. His newest book is Conspiracy, which we'll discuss today, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. So, Michael, thank you for joining me today. Oh, nice to see you. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited because having a conversation with you in these times, in these ages of, you know, accelerated artificial intelligence, social media connectedness, all of this thinking that we're being exposed to, we're being pulled to so many directions and we don't really, I believe we don't have the, the skill sets to really differentiate what to believe and what not to believe. So I appreciate you working helping us do a, a path, carving a path to do that. But before we really dive deep into it, Michael, what motivated you to become a science writer and a skeptic? And how has your work evolved during these years? How has your work during evolved? Mm, the bigger picture, yeah. Well, when I was in college, I was interested in a lot of these topics that I write about now. Uh, science and religion, I was religious at the time, the paranormal, the supernatural, miracles, UFOs, aliens, psychic power, ESP. I thought all that was super interesting. And, you know, as I got training in science, I got interested in figuring out how to, how do you know what to believe? Because people make all sorts of claims. Which ones should I believe and which should I be skeptical of? And really, it's science that's best equipped to do that, that is to figure out what I should believe, uh, what's likely to be true, what's likely not to be true, what's presently indeterminate, um, you know, wh where should I put my credence here or there, how do I evaluate evidence, that's what scientists, you know, grad students, students and undergrads and grad students are trained how to do, particularly in my field, initially in the experimental psychology, the whole thing is designed you know, research methods and, and statistics and, you know, that sort of thing trains you how, where, kind of where to draw the line. Mm -hmm. That is, it's like a signal detection problem. There's a lot of noise. Is there a signal in the noise? How do you know? And it's clear now uh, from a century of research in psychology, we're not intuitively equipped to determine that on our own. Our instincts and intuitions are often very misleading. Mm. And, you know, we uh, are subject to a host of cognitive biases, motivated reasoning, my side bias, confirmation bias, hindsight bias, self-serving bias, you know, self-justification bias, attribution bias. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of them that if you work alone, you're, you're going to probably go down uh, the wrong path. So science is very communal exercise in which you bounce your ideas off other people and test them that way. So that that's kind of the, the bigger picture. I started Skeptic Magazine. Here's what it looks like, by the way. This is our latest issue on nationalism matters. Uh, and we are a quarterly publication. We started with my partner there above my shoulder, yep. Pat Lindsay, in 1992. She passed away last year. And uh, we've been publishing quarterly skeptic issues ever since. Each one has a particular theme, but we cover all the usual topics that I've just mentioned and, and many more. 
yeah, we. I would love to to dive deep into all of the biases that you mentioned and all of these crazy conspiracy theories that may not seem very crazy for some, for few, or actually some turn out to be true. But all of these, th this is going to be a very in-depth conversation in terms of of those topics. But Michael, before we really dive deep, I was I'm curious to know, you know, you saw probably a demand or maybe this this whole this void to be filled in in a world of skepticism and scientific thinking so what was the desire how did that how was that born and also why should we think on skepticism and science thinking like why how should we approach skepticism mm. Well, I guess you'd have to ask yourself, you know, do you have goals or not? Do you want to know things or not? Do you want to understand reality or not? And, you know, if you have goals and you want to achieve them, you have to have some kind of knowledge about the world. And the best way to do that is through rationality and empiricism and logic and science and philosophy and so on. I mean, there are tools, depending on you know, what labels you want to use, to get at uh, reliable knowledge. That is what I, what I should believe and what I should not believe. And that will help you determine what, what goals, how to achieve your goals. It won't tell you which goals you should uh, achieve. That's kind of personal. But whatever it is, um, you know, there are tools of thinking that get you there, are more likely to get you there than not. <clears throat> and so uh, in, in any case, I don't think there's any sacred cows we can address any particular claims about the world, including moral uh, claims and uh, meaning. You know, morality and meaning has often been relegated to religion, but there's no reason why science and philosophy can't also address those questions. How can science address the the question of meaning? Because sometimes we fail to to realize that through scientific thinking and through our tools, like you mentioned, meaning can arise. So. Do you see this way of thinking as conflicting with religion? Is it a zero-sum game or they can work together? Oh, no, they can work together for sure. And in fact, empirically, they do because lots of religious people are really into science. And uh, a lot of sci professional scientists believe in God and they're religious of various sorts. So obviously it can. How does it happen in the mind? Well, first you have logic type compartments. That is, people often separate their scientific work or their rational world from this kind of other world, this mythic world or or religious world or political world. You know, there's different kinds of beliefs or truths or whatever you want to call them. You know, if I say, well, I'm a Democrat or I'm a, a Republican, um, that may, and you're a scientist, you probably hold those beliefs for reasons different than you, you believe in the theory of evolution or the Big Bang theory or the germ theory of disease or whatever likely to be the case. <clears throat> what I'm arguing is that it doesn't have to be that way. We can actually make uh, claims, uh, even political or religious claims, grounded in empirical evidence, for example, and uh, at least give it a try, right? That's what I, I did in the moral arc and, and in uh, Giving the Devil is due. I have a few essays on pushing that idea a little further. Facts and values, that is, they can overlap. Maybe not perfectly, um, but in terms of like meaning, well, first on one level, it's very personal. Like what, what do you do to find meaning in life? It's likely to be slightly different from mine, but in fact, re research on, uh, how people find meaningfulness, purposefulness, happiness, self-satisfaction or uh, well-being, whatever terms we want to use 
there's certain commonalities that come up over and over, like having meaningful work, hmm. you know, having a reason to get up in the morning, get out the door and go off somewhere and do something that that is pretty universal. Most people like that. They, they feel like they're useful that way. Yeah. Um, having a, a social network, friends, a community of people you like just hanging out with. Maybe you have a hobby you do together or a sport or whatever. Just these are not work people, work workmates. These are just friends, you know, people you hang out with uh, outside of work. And then family, you know, have, having somebody, a partner, uh, a, a meaningful relationship, children, parents, uh, si- uh, you know, siblings, cousins, whatever, extended family. Uh, that seems to bring people a lot of meaningfulness and, and happiness. And then um, something got a little more nefarious or not nefarious, sorry, nebulous, hard to define is something like spirituality or transcendence or, you know, doing something occasionally that takes you out of your own skin so it's not just you. It's not an ego centered. It's, and this could be religion, or it could be some kind of spirituality, or yoga, or doing dance, or meditation, or you know Buddhism, or you know whatever. I mean, there's just you know lots of different tools to get there. But the idea is to take yourself out of your own ego, and those four things um, that seems to be common amongst people who have been studied. Uh, on you know, there's psychologists who study meaningfulness and happiness and so on. Those those seem to be core elements. Yeah, it's really really interesting. And like you say, we're part of of a bigger society, a bigger group. Whether it's a community, whether it's a nation, whether it's a tribe, like an ev- in evolutionary terms, all of these notions. And it seems that in today's world, we're being pulled to towards so many directions. <clears throat> in terms of our beliefs, in terms of how we think the world really works and what to honestly, what to believe in, like we mentioned before. So Michael, what are some of the key important challenges you think we face today? And how do does your ideas, how your ideas help us to address them? And what are some of the key insights we can attain from, you know, thinking in a more structural sense? about the world. Mm. Well, I mean, since this is what I do for my day job, uh, I mean, <laughs> nationalism, <laughs> race, <laughs> yeah. abortion, trans. I mean, these are all hot button issues that we take on because I want to know to what extent does science have something to say about any of these topics? Now, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. You know, how do you know? Okay. So we address those issues. I mean, the, that last one, nationalism, you know, that, that, you know, the people screaming at each other image we have here yeah. addresses what you just brought up. That is how tribal we are, how emotionally committed and uh, in, uh, kind of involved we are in our tribes. It could be political tribes in this particular case, but it could be your religion or your ideology or whatever it is that you believe. And, you know, the idea that somebody believes different from you, you asked what's, what, what are some of the biggest problems today? This is one of them, is that uh, we've kind of gotten to the point where it's it's not just that people differ from me. Uh, that they're, but that they're wrong, and not just wrong, but immoral, or or even evil, hmm. for for believing this thing that I don't believe. And this could be something trivial, like what's the right percentage of immigrants we should allow into America? I think now it's one hundred and fifty thousand a year, or something like that, which is a fairly low number for such a big country. 
but but what's the right number? So people are passionate about this. It's too many. It's not enough. You know, what's the right number? A hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, a million, ten. <laughs> you know, and 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 I'm not sure that that science can tell us the right answer to that. There is no right answer. It depends on the goals of the country. Do you want more immigrants or don't you? And what do you want them for? For for fulfilling jobs that uh, your citizens don't want to do? Uh, will it will it goose the economy? Because let's say we have a lot of immigrants from India uh, who are uh, trained in tech and they want to go to Silicon Valley and they want to work at Google or Apple <laughs> or YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And, uh, you know, so we've set a, a goal. And, but what if that's not your goal? What if you have some other goal and you'd rather have immigrants that work in, uh, you know, take, taking care of homes or child care, you know, gardening, you know, so th there you want people from other countries that that want to do those jobs and and so on and so on. So science can't tell us those goals, but it can tell us, well, if this is what you want, then here's what you got to do to get that. <laughs> right. And uh, so those, you know, those are, I would say, are the messiest uh, problems. I mean, abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, or maybe you're pro-choice for other people, but you're pro-life for yourself. I mean, there's different positions. What's the right answer? There probably isn't a right answer, <laughs> although we've been moving over the decades more and more toward giving women reproductive rights. And and yet still an argument can be made that, you know, you're protecting the life of the fetus. Isn't that also moral? Yeah, sure. That You know, so you, then you end up with conflicting rights, like trans rights versus the rights of women to compete in sports with only other women and not men who are claiming to be women, right? That's a conflicting rights. You can't have everything. And uh, so to, to there, you know, we kind of hit a wall. I'm not sure science can tell us the correct answer there, but it can at least help guide our decisions. Yeah. And like you say, it's an ongoing process of, of thinking of things. And even though they're hot top bottom topics, without us discussing them and having an open dialogue and, and a an open-minded approach to them, we can't figure out ever the the real answer or maybe just uh, plan ahead or figure out the real answer that works best for everyone. So, Michael, you also mentioned our scientific tools and there's one question that I wanted to, to ask you in terms of the tools we have to make sense of the world around us. How much can we really trust the tools that we use, you know, the methods that we use, because they keep changing, they keep adapting to a new reality. For example, there was a new emergence of how we might, may be able to clear nuclear fusion, and which is a limitless mm. energy for, for thousands of years, or even revisit the theory of the Big Bang. What is the Big Bang mm. really? So how do you navigate this moving reality that inevitably we we inhabit and how do, does the that in and of itself not dissuade you in trusting our scientific tools well i read a lot of books i listen to a lot of podcasts i talk to a lot of experts on my own show um uh, yeah there are no sacred cows i mean it could be the big bang theory although it's pretty robust and it's certainly better than the steady state theory you know that competition kind of uh worked itself out in the 1960s and now we're pretty confident in the Big Bang Theory, but maybe that's the only the first bang. Maybe there are bangs before that. Maybe it's a cyclical universe. Maybe there's something we don't quite understand about what triggered the Big Bang. I mean, some singularity or something. Now I'm way out of my league here. I'm a <laughs> social scientist, not a physicist or cosmologist, but this is what I'm told. And that 
to address your question, you can't, you should not rely on any one source ever. Does it even matter if it's Stephen Hawking or, you know, whoever, some genius, Einstein, whatever the equivalent of that, um, because nobody is omniscient, right? That, so this is the fundamental uh, place where we begin. Um, you know, I'm not God and neither are you. And, or there is an objective reality, only I don't know what it is and neither do you. So we need to work together to figure out how close we can get to understanding that world, that reality, and we're going to be flawed. And we're all in a context of our culture, our time, and so on. If you went back 200 years or forward 200 years, you know, the worldviews and theories are going to be probably quite different. Well, they are quite different in the past. So... Um, so you have to really pay close attention to uh, doubters, to skeptics. Skepticism is a virtue. And but but so, for example, somebody says, well, I'm a good I'm a skeptic. I'm a I'm a skeptic of vaccines or I'm skeptic of climate change, or, you know, or I'm skeptic of uh, the theory of evolution or whatever. OK, well, it's not a virtue by itself. Like, like you should just be skeptical of everything and believe nothing that anybody ever says. No expert has ever been right, and therefore I'm not going to believe anything. Well, that's not true, <laughs> right? There's degrees of confidence you can have in theories, more or less. <clears throat> and given that it's always provisional, you can provisionally say, for now, I'm going to accept this hypothesis, the Big Bang theory of evolution, vaccines work, climate change is real or whatever. Uh, but always stating, but I could, I could change my mind. You know, I, I'm willing to change my mind if the facts change. You know, go ahead, make it. Give give me your best shot. What what is it you think uh, about X that uh, you know I'm missing? And and then, by the way, you have to tell me what what you would do to change your mind. Hmm. Let's say you don't accept the Big Bang theory. Well, why not? You know, what would it take for you to accept it? Or the theory of evolution, or that vaccines don't cause autism, or vaccines do uh, work to uh, attenuate the spread of COVID nineteen. What Whatever it is. And, you know, so it's always good to keep an open mind, but not so open that you believe everything or you believe nothing. You got to believe something to get out of bed and get off out into the world and function. So what is it you believe and why? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned how we tend to believe certain things. And one of the insights that I take from, from what you just said is that those beliefs we tend to really be emotional about, those should be the ones we really should target. Like, why do I believe this? And try to disassociate my identity with my belief of vaccines, of climate change. And if you're saying, hey, I have another contentious idea about your belief, that doesn't necessarily mean automatically that you have a conflicting notion against my identity, against my own self, which I believe it's tending to increase in today's world. We're really in an in a very rapid way, all of our beliefs become our identities. So it's an automatic insult. Yes, well so take you've got to take personalities out of it and just deal with ideas. Right. So <clears throat> you don't want to attack somebody's personhood like you're an idiot for not believing the theory of evolution. That's not going to get you anywhere. And it's not likely the person that doesn't accept the theory of evolution is stupid. Uh, most of the creationists, for example, intelligent design theorists I've met, they're not dumb at all. They're highly intelligent, educated, thoughtful people that reason their way to their conclusions. I think their reasoning is flawed. And, and I explain why in one of my books. Give, uh, it was in Darwin. No, um, why Darwin matters. <laughs> uh, but so, so, but in any case, 
in, in, in all debate, disputation, discussion, conversations, it's best to just keep it to talking about ideas. Yeah. Just leave the person out. It doesn't matter who they are, what their political orientation, what their religious beliefs are. Unless, of course, somebody's saying, well, because I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus died for our sins, and he was resurrected on day three after he was murdered by uh, the Romans and crucified and so on. Okay, is that? are you making an empirical claim? Are you saying that that actually happened? I mean, there was a fully functioning actual human being who was alive, and then he was dead for three days. And I mean, really dead, not in a coma, <laughs> like like sort of that Dan Brown novel almost uh, scenario where he's whisked off the cross, still alive, in a coma, and then, you know, put in the tomb and then whisked away to France where he started a family with Mary Magdalene. Anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, or are you claiming it's mythically true? Like, well, I don't know. So Jesus was really dead, really resurrected from the dead and so on. I just think it's what I believe as a Christian or Catholic or whatever. Okay. But why, why do you believe it? You know, is it because you were raised to believe that, or this is what your social group believes? You know, is there some reason why you should believe it? And, and then the question is, is, is it okay to believe things with, without good reason? Now I would say, I would prefer not to. I would prefer to have good reasons, at least having thought it through carefully um, before just, you know, casting my my beliefs to the faith winds. <laughs> and uh, so but but I mean, to your larger point, um, it, unless somebody their identity is deeply tied into exactly what they're claiming, then just just talk about the claims and then and it's it's less likely to result in anger hurt feelings, you know, the conversation devolving into a shouting match um, and, or as they say, uh, reductio ad Hitlerum, where everything gets reduced to Hitler <laughs> online and online debates. I think that's, uh, whose law is that? Uh, God, is that Godwin's law? I forget. Where if online conversations, go, uh, debates go on long enough, they it re result in somebody calling the other person Hitler or a Nazi, right? And uh, so that's not useful. Yeah. I mean, there are rules about how to debate, just like there are good rules about conversations. And I talked about that in the last chat, one of the last chapters of conspiracy. Yeah. You know, how do you talk to a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> well, you can't just say you're an idiot to be believe in QAnon or the rigged election or whatever. You actually have to like find out what the person believes and ask them, and, and ask them why they believe that, and actually have a conversation about the claim itself, not the person. Yeah, uh, that's a perfect. <laughs> Segue into your book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. And it's a very, it's a dive deep into our belief systems like we were discussing right now. And one of the most interesting aspects, I, I'm currently reading it, I haven't finished it yet, but you touch on our evolutionary blueprint and how it pays to be paranoid. Why? Like, it's really a rational thing to believe the irrational because... In, I would like you to, to cover it because I don't want to butcher your ideas, but <laughs> it reminded me of Billy Joel's song of you may be wrong, but you may be right and how it pays off. <laughs> <laughs> you may be wrong, you may be right. right. Would, you like to, <laughs> would you like to cover, you know, why is it that rationality pays off in terms of believing crazy ideas and also how is the type one and type two errors playing to, into the equation as well as our evolutionary blueprint? Right. So the thesis of my book is that it's not always irrational to believe conspiracy theories because some of them are true. 
So a conspiracy theory is just a theory about a possible conspiracy, which is two or more people plotting in secret to do something to a third party uh, organization that is illegal or immoral or whatever. And and it's in the secret part is it. So uh, we know historically that conspiracies do happen all the time. They're, they're quite common. Uh, so if you take something like JFK, now I think he was assassinated by a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't think there was anyone else involved. I think the evidence is quite clear, and I present it in the, that chapter, and I consider the alternatives, of which there are none, really, or hundreds, <laughs> uh, and, and of which there's no evidence for anybody else, and so on. But it's not irrational to think that there might have been a cabal to assassinate the president, because there have been numerous assassinations of foreign of, of, of heads of state throughout history. It's not uncommon for uh, the transfer of power to happen non-peacefully. You know, we've been hearing this phrase, the peaceful transfer of power, because of the 2020 election, and Trump never conceded. Yeah. But in fact, historically, it was not usual for power to transfer peacefully. That's why Americans make such a big deal about that we've never had that, a, a non-peaceful transfer of power. That's never happened in our entire history. And we make a big deal about it because actually that's rare. You know, if you look at the transfer of power historically over the last thousand years or whatever, you know, most of the time it's done violently. And so it's, you know, and, and or if you look at the history of the CIA since post-World War II, um, you know, we were involved in the assassination of foreign leaders, in rigging elections to aid dictators that were more favorable to American interests, usually in the during the Cold War against communist dictators. So fascist dictators were better than communist dictators and so on in you know, Central America, South America, Asia, and so on. So um, it's not irrational to think that, right? So I call this constructive conspiracism, that it's, a, it's kind of a, almost a constructive paranoia, mm -hmm. as it's called, um, that it's there's a kind of irrationality to it. Now, that doesn't mean you're that the conspiracy theory is true. You have to take them one at a time and ask what's the evidence and evaluate them independently. But in, in general, it's a signal detection problem. Is there a signal in the noise that it looks like there might be a conspiracy afoot? Is there or is there not? So your theory that there is may be true, may not be true. So we have to evaluate it like we would any theory and ask for the evidence. Is there convergence of evidence that you're right? Or is, is there no convergence of evidence? And and so on. And so I, I have many long discussions in the book about how to do that. You know, what questions should you ask? What how, what how should we evaluate the evidence for any particular conspiracy theory? But the larger point is that uh, it's rational. There's a kind of rationality to thinking more conspiracy theories are true than they probably are, just in case. Because if you make the other kind of error, you assume that the conspiracy theory is not true, and it is, and it, and they're out to get you. Yeah. That can be harmful to you, right? That, that's that line, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Sometimes they are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you point out, you know, what's the, the evidence for, for our claims. And one of the biggest, quote-unquote, conspiracy theories that now became a fact was the Twitter files, how Elon Musk revealed all of the, you know, the the connections between the government and Twitter and social media, trying to censor some thinkers or some ideas, or even the Hunter Biden uh, conversation, the Hunter Biden situation that happened. And what happened here was people were sniffing that something happened, actually, but they weren't given the information, they weren't given the evidence. So 
And then afterwards, it became real. It became true that something was happening. So how can we approach these kinds of situations? And specifically, what are your thoughts with the Twitter files? Mm. Yes, I've read those. Um, it's a good start. Um, I mean, a Twitter thread is not the same as... I don't know, 5,000 word investigative piece in the New York Times that's been uh, fact checked by multiple editors and, and gone through. And there's multiple sources for each of the claims in the investigation and so on. The Twitter files is not at that level yet, in my opinion. It's it's good that we know these things and it's not really surprising. I mean, did anybody think that Twitter was not doing what we all thought they were doing the whole time, all these years that they were shadow banning and screening out people that were more right-leaning than left-leaning. I mean, conservatives have been complaining about that for the last 15 years. Yeah. Am I getting that right? So just say at least the last decade. Um, and, you know, so it, none of that surprised me. Um, the government uh, involved in that also doesn't really surprise me because I know a lot about the CIA and the FBI, which I researched for my book. Um, about all the things they are up to. And of course, the CIA and the FBI would be involved in social media because this is just yet another platform where information is exchanged and we can uh, collect it on people, uh, you know, from the president on down. You know, the president's tweeting at three in the morning, some crazy ideas he has rattling around in his head. That's good to know. So, of course, the, the intelligence agencies all over the world are keeping track of this. And, um, and and so it also didn't surprise me that they contacted Twitter. Now, it's not clear that Twitter was just an arm of intelligence agencies doing whatever they were. The bidding was there. Uh, you can see from some of the Twitter files, there was conversation, resistance, like, well, I don't know if we should do this. Is this the right thing to do? You can see those memos where the, the Twitter employees are debating this. OK, that's good. Um, but in general, I think it's best we err on the side of transparency. Uh, that is, just let people have their say. Don't censor them. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think Trump should have been kicked off Twitter. I, I for one, I, I'm not a Trump fan, to say the least. I think he's a, been a massive disaster for the GOP. Um, the Repu you know, We need a sane, central, slightly to the right of center uh, uh, Republican Party to counter the crazy far left. And if the if the if the conservatives go too far to the right, then, you know, then this is not good. But I do want to know what Trump's thinking at three in the morning. when He's, you know, he's just, you know, kind of posting these these crazy tweets it, much like uh, Elon does. Now, maybe this is not good. I kind of wish Elon would just go back to work <laughs> and stay off Twitter because his Twitter stock, I mean, his Tesla stock is tanked and i own some of that i own a tesla too it's like come on elon don't forget your other company <laughs> right but you know like the uh, hunter biden laptop story so much has been made about that i'm not sure uh how much there is there there um and the only way to find out is come on just just some investigative journalist just look into it and just tell us what what's there and uh, instead of using it as a political tool which it has been on both sides mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, I didn't like that it was buried just before, you know, the October surprise before the 2020 election. But I'm old enough to remember there's always an October surprise supposedly coming all the way back to when Carter was president. And, you know, Reagan looked like he might win. And there was just going to be this big October surprise that cans one of the two candidates. And that, that that's been the case every election. And uh, so none of that surprised me. But the answer to that is just okay, just put it all out there. Mm 
don't censor anybody. And, um, you know, now I have to admit it's, it's a problem for a social media company that the New York, say the New York times, the wall street journal doesn't have. That is to say, um, here's the analogy I use. Let's say the New York times or the wall street journal gets like a hundred submissions for opinion editorials every day. And they publish maybe one or two uh, in addition to their regular columnists. And those that are published are deeply fact-checked. They're edited by multiple people. I know because I write these. And and by the time it sees print and readers read it, it has been vetted very carefully to make sure you're not libeling somebody uh, or you know saying something that's going to harm a company or, or whatever. They, you know, they have lawyers that look at these things and so on. There's nothing like that. On online, you know, how many tweets are there per per second? I mean, it's like a, a million a second or something. I don't know what it is. So, yeah. there's no way Twitter or Facebook. How many posts on Facebook are there? You know, every minute, you know, you have millions. There's no way any 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 algorithm, any set of largest set of employees can ever possibly fact check vent those things. So, I don't know what the solution to that is, uh, other than just let all the flowers bloom and just, you know, you figure it out. Every consumer of content has to be their own fact checker and editor. And there are sites that do this, you know, PolitiFact, for example, I like them, uh, Snopes, um, my own site, skeptic.com. We do what we can to fact check things that are in our wheelhouse. And there's lots of sites like that. And that's just what you have to do. But what's the alternative? You know, to shut down the companies, uh, uh, break them up, uh, regulate them, the government come in and swoop in. And I mean, already people are upset the government was involved talking to Twitter. Well, right. <laughs> where do you see what the regulatory state will do if they get involved? Right. So, yeah. And one of the tools that we do have for, for us consumers is your book, Conspiracy, which shows us some tools to handle all of the noise that is happening in the internet, which has become, especially Twitter has become our main source of information for so many people. And it's Nassim Taleb put it this way. He said that Twitter is like a cafe where it brings the biggest, most important scientist and, uh, you know, a regular worker who has a hot take on science. And you read the two tweets at the same time and you don't know how to discern which one's real and which one's not real. So, but your tools, your, your book really do help us in in approaching this newfound genie in the bottle in a much better, healthier way for, for everyone. And well, Michael, so there, yeah, even there, you know, just uh, you, you see a tweet about something that happens, okay, the royal family or some murder or, or, or a, a mysterious suicide or whatever. That's fine. You know, that's it's, it's fun to get information like that. But But before you retweet or comment, you know, maybe check, check Associated Press or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal or NPR. Just look to see if there's some other sources that have looked into this. What do we know about this? I was just tweeting this morning about that uh, murder, uh, sort of a mass murder of a large family. I think it was eight people, five children, three adults. Uh, and of this, it was, It's in this town in Utah that's known to be mostly polygamous families, these fundamentalist Latter-day, Church of Latter-day Saints, fundamentalist Mormons. They still practice polygamy. Mm -hmm. It's not legal in, in the United States. It's illegal. But they marry one of the wives and then just have sister wives, as they're called, right? They're just girlfriends. There's nothing illegal about having affairs and, and committing adultery, being married to one woman, and then having sex with other women. It's not illegal, <laughs> right? So that's what they do. Well, all of a sudden, there's a story yesterday about, you know, the the um, uh, social workers want to check on them because a lot of these fundamentalist Mormons live off of welfare. And, uh, and they found them all dead. Okay, so I posted 
you know, a link to John Krakauer's book under the banner of heaven that, that traced the history of this, um, this murder in the 1980s, the Lafferty brothers killed one of the wives because she wasn't vibing the multiple wives thing. Right. And so, uh, you know, sexual jealousy and power and this and that, and that led. And so the whole book is about this whole subject. And, you know, that's not the only time something like that has happened. So I just posted, look, it's too early to tell. We don't know anything other than this happened, but do know this town is, you know, is mostly filled with, fundamentalist mormons and we do know there are these weird cases like this so it's probably something like uh, related to polygamy sexual jealousy and so forth and uh, you know so there if, if you qualify and say look it's too soon to tell but here's a few things that we know and here's some references you can look up to me that seems okay rather than just shooting my mouth off i know what the cause of this which which i don't yeah absolutely like you say if we have a wait and see approach that pays better off in terms of also our own well-being if i believe this was mangled by some bigger force i'm gonna feel overwhelmed as well like you argue and like you say it's it's a very good insight michael we're entering an election cycle a presidential election cycle we've we've been discussing tangentially and your most recent publication which is nationalism on the skeptic magazine also comes into play and i would like i would like to connect both your publication and your book conspiracy in terms of the election cycle what are we how are we supposed to approach this cycle and what are some of the things we should be in the lookout for in terms of information overload conspiracy theories and all of these ideas that get thrown out of us to either divide us or make us vote for one person against the other. What are some of your thoughts on this? Mm, right. I'm less worried than I was a few weeks ago. Uh, I was worried that Trump will probably get the nomination for the GOP, um, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, I, I mean, I was worried about it because, uh, as you know, he's never even conceded that he lost, yeah. even though he did lose. He absolutely lost. Everybody knows but him. Maybe even he knows and he's just you know lying, but maybe he really believes that he won. I don't know. But um, but for the most part, again, back to the peaceful transfer of power, this is a fundamental element of our democracy. If we can't have that, we don't really have a democracy. So that was where I'm worried about that. You know, you hear this talk of civil war. There's not going to be a civil war or anything like what we had in the 1860s, but but there could be a lot of violence and and conflict like that. And just general divisiveness is not good. Again, you know, the cover here of people screaming at each other out of hatred. So, you know, I would like to see more. Um, I guess the way it used to be done, apparently, from what we have people that study congressional relationships across the aisle, that congressmen and senators from different parties used to hang out with each other on the weekends. Their kids would you know, play soccer games or whatever together, and they'd see each other. They'd have dinner together and drinks together and then dis disagree with each other over immigration or tax policy or abortion or whatever. But they still got along. Right. And th that apparently no longer happens. They, you know, they just you know, hate each other and that the other side is not just wrong, not just different, not just wrong, but immoral, evil. They want to destroy America, you know, and the right accuses the left of that and vice versa. I, you know, we just have to get uh, past that. And it's in part driven by uh, social media, starting with actually conservative talk radio. I'm old enough to remember when this happened, when I started uh, uh, listening to Rush Limbaugh. And and it's like, holy crap, this guy is just, just like way out there. And the, and the further out he went, 
the bigger his ratings got and the larger the audience. I thought, oh boy. Wow. Yeah. But I kept waiting for the, the equivalent of that on the left. Right. And there wasn't anybody doing that. Now we have maybe Bill Maher, Rachel Maddow, a few others, but nothing like Hannity and Tucker Carlson and, and, uh, you know, so, so forth. Not all the radio people. There's just nothing like that. And, and I, I think the driving mechanism is that elected officials listen to those people and they think, boy, I don't want to be denounced by Sean Hannity on Fox News. Oh, my God, if I am, my constituency is going to disown me. So I better say things that, you know, they're going to repeat or have me on their show. And I think that fuels it. Uh, you know, if if you're caught talking to or being friendly with a Democrat, if you're a Republican, maybe you get denounced on Fox News and then and then then you fear for your election. Or in the case of Liz Cheney, you know, you hold sacred, deep values like honesty, integrity and truth over and above your political um, uh, platform, you know, planks in your platform like immigration or, or gun control or or war or abortion or whatever. Liz Cheney gave up all of that in in to to honor her deeper commitment to truth. And and that ruined her career. She's done because Trump denounced her. Now, maybe she can make a comeback. Who knows? But uh, but uh, that's what I'm worried about. You know, we just let's just get back to kind of normal, normal, dirty politics rather than, you know, what we're we've been experiencing lately. You know, what will happen in 2024? It's hard to say. You know, I don't really, No one knows. Um, you know, maybe DeSantis or or or, or um, you know, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. There's probably a dozen that we're going to see come out in the next Probably about six months from now, they'll start coming out and making noise about running. And then we'll see, you know, how, how Trump fares against them. He'll come up with his little um, schoolyard nicknames for them, like, you know, Low Energy Jeb and Lion Ted and and Little Marco and and so on. He tried that with DeSantis. It didn't go over well. Desa- uh, Ron DeSanctimonious, I think is you know, too many syllables. His followers are like, what? What's sanctimonious? I don't even know what that means. Right. So I think... Uh, I think maybe his schoolyard taunts aren't going to work anymore, which is good. Um, I don't think Trump should be allowed anywhere near the White House. He should maybe he should even be in prison for all I know. I don't know. I'm not uh, now. I know people listening to this go, "Oh, Shermer's got Trump derangement syndrome." No, I don't. You do. If you think this guy should be president, you you are deranged, right? I mean, he you know he is not a conservative. He has no values other than whatever serves him well. You know, he is a dark triad psychopath, Machiavellian, um, and uh, what's the third one? Uh, so psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism. and narcissism. Yeah, narcissism. And uh, yeah, so that's anyway. So I'm kind of rambling now. I don't. I don't want to focus too much on Trump. But you asked, what am I concerned? That would be it. If he if he just disappears and the GOP gets back to the way they usually do things, and they come up with somebody like a John McCain or a Mitt Romney, somebody like that. Then then I'm not. If if they got elected, then I I wouldn't be worried. And you also touch on a civil war, which God forbid happens, and it seems that it's being fueled by the beliefs of divisiveness and like you say the this philosophy of us versus them they're evil we're not uh we're virtuous they're not and as individuals you know personal emotions come into play which is which are of course anxiety loss of control they're trying to they're trying to mangle with my own american dream version what what does that mean and so how can we as individuals tune down because 
elected officials seem not to be doing it, but from our end, this heated conversation and how do can we plug in your ideas into this civil war topic? Mm, yeah, well, so at the end of conspiracy, I, I have a whole chapter on this, you know, and I, I talk about the Constitution of Knowledge. Jonathan Rausch's book by that title is really good. You know, just the, kind of the commitment to the values and norms that we have developed over the centuries, like truth-telling, skepticism, fact-checking, editing, you know, just uh, a commitment to working together to try to figure out what's true. And this is true in journalism, it's true in science, true in criminal justice. There's techniques we've developed in all these fields uh, to get around all the flaws in our reasoning that I mentioned, my side bias, hindsight bias, confirmation bias, and so on. And there, those are rampant in all fields, everywhere. So we have to work around that. And it really begins with all of us just kind of committing to those values and those norms and reinforcing them. Just like um, it's not cool to laugh at racist jokes or uh, misogynist jokes or jokes about Jews or Poles or whatever. You know, when I was a kid in the 60s, you know, people, they were Polish jokes. You know, what do you call a Pole or what do you call, you know, and that's just not cool anymore. Or, you know, Jews making fun of Jews or, you know, dumb blondes or whatever, or God forbid, use the N word, which was not unusual in, say, the 60s and 70s. And we don't st we just don't do that anymore. It's not cool. It's it's not only not cool, you know, you could be canceled. And, you know, I'm generally not a fan of cancel culture, but I, I do like pushing back against people who break those norms and just say, you know what, dude, that's just not, uh, don't don't do that anymore. Don't say that anymore. That's just not cool. Stop that. And from there, from the bottom up, it all kind of trickles out into culture through language, how we talk to each other. Uh, and that then gets transcribed into television scripts, comic books, novels, nonfiction works, television shows, films. And across the board, all of us have our kind of moral consciousness raised yeah. very slowly, but not too slowly. I mean, it happens in the course of years and decades. Slow enough, you don't really see it until you look back and go, wow, look at the way people used to talk back in the 60s about Jews and blacks and women. And they just don't do that anymore. Okay, so I would prefer that over top-down, you know, passing draconian laws by fiat. The government's going to make you do things. I don't, I'm not a fan of compelled speech. In fact, I'm against compelled speech, as is the Supreme Court. Just Supreme Court on almost every case, they vote against compelled speech, yeah. and uh, you know, just let people say whatever they want. But let let's make it clear: certain things we would prefer you not to say because it's just not cool to say that. And uh, and you know, so, but but if you want to be critical, like I, I'm always. Almost every time I post something or write something about trans issues, um, like what, how many, how many trans are there? Right. I mean, this is an empirical question. Now, the data is pretty um, messy on this question, but it's pretty, pretty small number. Probably you know one tenth of one percent. But even if it's one percent, you know, it doesn't really matter what the percent is. We should not discriminate against trans people, and I always say that. You know, trans people should not be fired for being trans. They shouldn't be discriminated against for jobs or mortgages and so on. Uh, definitely. But, you know, but my saying that I think trans is a vanishingly small category and, and people that say, oh, no, it's huge. You know, everybody's a little bit trans. There was that that video going around uh, yesterday about that poem somebody was reading, a trans person was reading about. We're all a little bit trans. No, we're not. <laughs> That's an empirically false statement. You know, right? But it's not transphobic for me to say that. 
uh, I'm just, what's the, you know, it's just an empirical question. What about sports? What's your take on sports and trans people? Oh, well, I've written, I wrote a couple of strong columns in my, I have a Substack skeptic column, continuation of my Scientific American column. So I, I wrote one called, What is a Woman Anyway? About the sort of class of, or a man, if you want. You know, what does it mean to use these words? These are concepts, cognitive concepts that the words represent. And so my point was, if everybody is a can be a man or a woman, no matter what, just by declaring it, then the word really doesn't have any meaning. You know, if, if a man can get pregnant and, and if a woman has a penis, then what do those words mean? <laughs> you know, so there's that. And then, uh, and again, if you, you personally, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. You should not be discriminated against. You have the same rights as me. You're protected by the constitution. If you're a U.S. citizen, all that is, is a given. Uh, but, you know, if you want to compete, you, Alex, let's say you say, well, you know what? I'm a woman now. I'm going to compete against women in swimming or tennis or track and field or whatever. Okay, hang on now. <laughs> now we have a conflict because the reason we have women's sports at all is because clearly there's a physical difference between men and women on athletic performance in most sports. So, uh, you know, and I always quote Thomas Sowell, there are no solutions. They're just compromises. You can't have everything. You can't have women have the right to compete against other women in sports and have men have the right to compete against women in their own divisions in sports. You can't have both, right? You got to. So unfortunately, that the, the, the incident with the pen swimmer, Leah Thomas, um, looks like it's going in the direction of protecting women's sports. The international swimming organization that sanctions swimming meets around the world has, set, has now said that uh, you would have had to, tra uh, to, to transition before puberty. Uh, and because the previous rule was if you, if you take a year off and you take the hormones post puberty, then you can call yourself a woman, but it's clear that it's too late. You know, after puberty, the, the physical differences are massive. I mean, like 10, 20, 30% difference in performances, not even close. And so, you know, knocking back your, your testosterone for a year does very little. You already have the massive frame and large bones and different ligaments and tendons and muscles. And, and, you know, just knocking back your, you say your VO2 uptake oxygen capacity or strength by 1% or whatever, it's just not going to do it. It's not fair. So that's my, my thoughts on that. Uh, really interesting, and you know these the, these kind of topics have really a lot of moving parts, and and it's important to to ask questions on you know how how do we think about these issues and how can we approach it in a meaningful, constructive way? Like you say, how can we compromise to to have best of all worlds so we can all thrive as human beings and be respected towards one another, like you mentioned, not be discriminated, and your ideas do truly invite us to do that collectively. And, you know, as we begin to, to wrap up, Michael, if, you know, if there's, if I could give you a magic wand right now, <laughs> and if I could tell you, you could literally instill an idea or a thought or a thought process into everyone's mind, just like a software, into their software, what would be your answer? Epistemic humility. That is to say, be humble before the the world because you don't know that you're right, and I don't either. 
None of us do. Okay. Again, back to where we begin. I'm not omniscient and neither are you. I'm not God, neither are you. There is an objective reality. I don't know what it is and neither do you. Right. So we have to be humble before the facts, before the world and go, you know what? I think this is the way it is, but I could be wrong. Just put that in there, you know, like every other sentence or just once a day. Say, you know what? I could be wrong <laughs> just in case. Uh, and, you know, be willing to change your mind. Yeah. And, and or, even if you're not really going to change your mind, at least, at least say or think, you know what? I might change my mind. Probably not, you know, like say for me on the theory of evolution, which I know a lot about. It's unlikely that that's going to turn out to be true, a false theory. And so I'm unlikely to change my mind. But I, again, I could be wrong. I'm willing to you know, give it your best shot. Tell me what you think and show me why I'm wrong. And, and that even if you don't do anything about it, at least it makes you a little more humble and open to other people and may, maybe a little less hateful of other people for having different ideas. Yeah. What is this is a sort of a rapid fire segment. What is one conspiracy theory that you that blew your mind that became true? What is one that really Oh, I would say uh, all the different activities of the FBI and the CIA in the 50s, 60s, just say the Cold War, uh, really was quite surprising when a lot of these things came to light, starting with the Church Committee and other investigations in the 90s and, and, and you know, the Pentagon Papers, Afghanistan Papers, WikiLeaks. You know, there's a lot of these big data dumps. You're like, what? We were doing what? Really? <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, there's enough of those operation paperclip in which we're uh, hiring these former Nazis to work on weapons for our country, biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, rocketry, and so on. Uh, you know, Project uh, MK Ultra, mind control uh, of other people using hallucinogenic drugs, psychoactive drugs, and so on, like LSD, dosing U.S. citizens without their knowledge or consent. This is illegal now. <laughs> it wasn't at the time, I guess. Uh, our own assassination of foreign leaders. You know, they're after the Cold War, they're developed... There was three strategies for a U.S. president. You know, you can go to war, you can use diplomacy, and if those two don't work, and with nuclear weapons, you really want to avoid war if possible. If diplomacy breaks down, they had a third option: use the CIA to go in there and assassinate this guy, or help him, uh, the other party, overturn him in a coup. You know that, and we did a lot of that, a lot. Or the FBI's COINTELPRO, the, uh, the counterintelligence program, spying on U.S. citizens, infiltrating civil rights groups, including those of Dr. King, uh, blackmailing Martin Luther King Jr. They they audio taped his sexcapades in hotel rooms with women and then and threatened to uh, make those tapes public if he didn't ki either kill himself or at least uh, quit being a civil rights activist. And uh, it's like, wait, the FBI did this? What? I mean, aren't, isn't Dr. King a U.S. citizen protected by the Constitution, yeah. right? And there was no court order. They didn't go to a judge and go, hey, we got to wiretap this guy's phones because we think he's a threat, which they can do. That's legal. Uh, no, they just did it. So there's enough of those. This gets back to my constructive conspiracism. There's enough of that that's gone on that people are aware of. So that when they hear somebody like an Alex Jones ranting about a false flag operation or an inside job, it's not completely crazy because that those kind of things have happened. Well, yeah, it's with that in mind, you know, that's the, the other question that I have is what are some of the current uh, 
modern contemporary conspiracy theories circling right now that you're keeping an eye on, that you're seeing this hasn't been proved yet, but I'm I'm paying close attention to them just in case. Mm, well, you know, the rigged election one, that, that's pretty much over, but uh, still significant percentages of people believe it, or at least they say, they tell pollsters they believe it. Now, maybe once Trump is gone, really gone, uh, people will just quit saying that they believe that anymore. And they'll quit telling pollsters they believe it, whatever's in their heart and minds, who knows. But uh, that QAnon is still around. Um, I'm just consulting on a court case uh, about uh, an incident where a QAnon group kind of tried to shut down this hospital. You know, there's people still doing crazy things like that, um, that you have to kind of keep an eye on. Of course, you know, in a way, the, the um, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, crypto, yeah. all that stuff, you know, that's a kind of conspiracy theory, you know, that that these people are up to something, and maybe they are, <laughs> something that's illegal, immoral, uh, you know, without people's knowledge or consent, doing things that really harms them. Uh, that that again, to, you know, he has to have a fair trial, right? So we'll see. And uh, you know, in all cases like that, um, more information is better. Uh, so those are the kinds of things I you know I'm, I'm paying attention to, mostly political. I'm uh, like back back to this issue. You know, yeah. we, we're we're monitoring the religious right. You know, kind of this different from it what the way it was in the 1980s with the moral majority. These are these are a little more nefarious. Um, this kind of Christian nationalism of not just trying to influence politics to get policies to help our party versus the other party, but really to break down the wall separating church and state. You know, there there's a lot of people, millions of Americans, Christians, who believe that America is a Christian nation. And that uh, and that we should get back to those values and and you know people that are not Christian have no place in America. Wow. Okay. There's a lot of people that believe that. So I'm worried about that. That's a that's another one. And they they you know these seemingly innocent sounding things like we're going to have a prayer breakfast next month. You know and and everybody's invited and and you know our polit our we're inviting our local mayor or the governor or senator congressman. Uh, even a president, uh, presidents attend these prayer breakfasts. These are not innocent uh, uh, get-togethers, right? I mean, this is big money fueling um, campaigns to get uh, the senators, congressmen, presidents, and, and especially Supreme Court justices we want to get our our religion into the public life, into political life, right? I mean, that's really the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That was the result of th really 30, 40, just say 30 years of con concerted effort by the time the, you know, these people kind of got their act together in the, in the nineties and, and aughts and tens to really try to uh, influence the selection of Supreme court justices to get them to overturn Roe v. Wade. And they did right now. I don't blame Trump for this because I think those same three justices or three pretty much just like them would have been nominated by uh, a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio or whoever might have won. Um, and so, um, you know, that that's a longer longer term concern of mine. Wow. There's a lot to to unpack there and and um, to be become more informed in my end about those those topics read skeptic magazine Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we're I mean, on it <laughs> I will, i'll definitely subscribe and michael you know as we wrap up there's just so many topics that 
we haven't touched, but I believe we did a great job in terms of going into the macro, the micro, in terms of discussing how your ideas truly can do an effect in terms of how we think, how we engage and how we approach others and how we create meaningful dialogue without us really being being intertwined emotionally because like you say we're in a we're in a very dynamic world. One of the most dynamic I can argue in history. A lot of moving parts, artificial intelligence, social media, the elections and the only way to be really have a really an ace in our hands is ideas like yours to be epistemologically uh, yeah, human, humble, humble, humble. Same, my word, just <laughs> so much, so much information. It's all right. So much yeah. information happening that it's <laughs> my brain is taking time. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's all right. Like you say, it's these are some of the tools we have as individuals to cope with a with an ever moving world. So I appreciate you coming here and joining me into one of the most interesting conversation I've had in a while. All right. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And we'll stay in touch. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.